Welcome to today's podcast, Using Scenario-Based Training to Test Active Shooter and Workplace Violence Preparedness. The world has experienced far too many school shootings and active shooter situations in the past year. As people from all walks of life puzzle over possible solutions, the temptation is to look for one thing that will make a difference. Solutions for the epidemic of shootings will need to be as complex as the problem itself, with multi-dimensional approaches and cooperation among groups that traditionally have not had much to do with each other. Red Ball Drills is an active shooter and workplace violence preparedness training methodology that aims to test processes and improve employee and enterprise readiness without workplace disruption or traumatizing personnel. The Red Ball Drill philosophy rests in the belief that preparation is the key to limiting the terrifying impact of incidents of workplace violence. In today's podcast, I'll be interviewing Eric Munchnik, President and CEO of Xperia Group. With over 15 years of experience in the security industry, Eric specializes in high-level security consulting, risk mitigation, specialized security training, threat assessments, and vulnerability analysis for commercial and government entities. He has worked as an instructor in counterterrorism tactics, firearms proficiency, anti-terrorism driving, surveillance detection, and non-lethal weaponry. Experian Group was founded in 2007 to provide premium risk management services for domestic and international clients, working closely with executive risk management, human resource, and facility management teams to provide benchmark solutions to security and safety-related issues. Xperia Group has designed a new active shooter drill and workplace violence training program, the Red Ball Drills. Uh, welcome, Eric, uh, to today's podcast. I'm really uh, happy to uh, spend some time with you today. Appreciate you having me. Thank you. So before we get into the specifics around uh, the active shooter program that you've got, uh, tell me a little bit about your background and the company and uh, how it came to be. Uh, sure. Uh, so I, my background uh, is with the uh, Israeli Defense Force. I was a paratrooper with them. I have dual citizenship, so I was born in Michigan but moved to Israel, was drafted, and then served in the IDF. Uh, came back from that and uh, got my degree in uh, chemical engineering uh, from Michigan and uh, and then went straight from undergrad to a anti-terrorism training company um, based out of Richmond, Virginia. Uh, so worked with them for several years. They were purchased by Armor Group, which is kind of like Blackwater, but nicer. And uh, and then worked with them until about 2006 as uh, senior manager of all commercial operations. Um, and then 2006 left and, uh, and started Xperia Group. Uh, really the idea of Xperia Group was to do penetration testing or red teaming. <clears throat> um, it was after 9-11. I literally started working in the counterterrorism field in August of 2001. Um, so one month later, obviously September 11th happened. And a year, two years, three years after that, Every security company was doing risk assessments, threat assessments, that kind of stuff for infrastructure, for schools, for commercial buildings. Um, so in 2006, I started to realize that, you know, assessments are great and a useful tool, but not so useful if you never actually test the processes that you're developing or identifying. Um, so Xperior is Latin for to test. Uh, and group is because it makes it sound like I have more people than just me, which I did not at the time. And uh, and then I, I took it from there uh, and had a nice base of clients when I left Armor Group. Um, and then finally, I would say five, six years into it is when uh, I developed the Red Ball Drills. 
So uh, talk to me a little bit about um, where that came from, the red ball drills, um, maybe go into a little of the details. I mean, we obviously have been exposed uh, throughout the, uh, the world to workplace violence, uh, to active shooters, whether it's in a school setting or in a workplace setting. Um, so it's really timely um, that, that you came into our network and that we could, uh, you know, make some uh, aware, build some awareness about what you're doing. But let our audience know a little bit about what a red ball drill is and how it's different than than what you might some might do in their traditional tabletop exercise. Uh, sure. Um, so it really came about, uh, I was approached by a client uh, who was a large property management company um, in all over the East Coast and actually throughout the country. <clears throat> and uh, and they had concerns. They were there in D.C. or their offices in D.C. had primary concerns because there was a couple of active shooter incidents that particular year. This probably was 2014, 2015. Um so they approached me because I'd done some assessment consulting work for them, and they said, "Hey, do you do active shooter training?" And so I said, "Nope." And uh, and they said, "Well, you know, what what would you recommend?" And I'm like, "Well, there's free stuff online. Run, hide, fight had already been developed at that point." Um, and uh, and I'm like, you know, I might be able to introduce you to some you know former law enforcement because they're kind of handling that stuff. They would not let me off that easy and said, you know, we know you and we have specific rec requests of what we want from our training, so we want you to design it. So uh, their stipulations were that they did not want run, hide, fight training. Uh, they did not want realistic training with orange guns that scare everybody in the office. And their biggest stipulation was that any drill we ran or exercise we ran could not interfere with tenant operations. As a property management company, they couldn't ask their tenants to conduct yet another drill when they already do fire drills, evac drills, and other kinds of things. So they didn't want tenants involved. Um, so with those marching orders, I kind of sat down and, and started researching active shooter training. And as I looked more and more what was out there, I realized that there was a huge element missing out of active shooter training. Um, and... That was essentially the idea of how you develop policy and procedure to actually manage an event. Um, run, hide, fight uh, is okay. It's fine. It's the national standard. The, the positives about run, hide, fight are that it gives people an understanding that they have a choice when there's a crisis event and they don't just sit there hoping for the best. Um, but run, hide, fight is essentially the stop, drop, and roll of active shooter training. Uh, and stop, drop, and roll is fantastic if you're on fire. Otherwise, from a fire management pr perspective, it does not really help. Uh, so I began to imagine walking into a building, looking at their fire management plan, and the only thing I see in their fire management notebook is stop, drop, and roll. I would be concerned, and I would say, you are lacking management policy. <clears throat> so that is really what the red ball drills were designed to do, is develop that policy and look at process more closely to understand how do we actually function in an event? Run, hide, fight is for the individual, and red ball drills, while they do help the individual, are meant for those with liability and duty to care. So how are they developing that process? Um, and, and, and it, oh, sorry, go ahead. Is there some significance to the, the term red ball drill? Is, uh, red ball, is that, did that come from somewhere? I am an unfortunately nostalgic person who can't let go of many things from my past. So at the time I was considering what to do for the drills, I was holding an old red utility ball from like dodgeball. Um, 
And I love those things. Everybody loves those things. It's impossible not right. to love those things. Right. So I, so I try to determine how can I base my entire career around this ball, and now I've done it. So it's that's great. really where it's Red Ball goes. It's a good backstory. I like it. I actually like it. Uh, so it focuses. It sounds like, and you can get into the details a little bit more around policy and procedures, um, and setting those up ahead of time, making sure there people who have duty of care for others have that those management policies and procedures in place. Um, but maybe talk a little bit about uh, a little bit more around how that's different from your traditional tabletop. Well, so the red ball drills work in in three phases, <clears throat> and uh, and basically the the first phase is a review of crisis man management plans, a review of uh, emergency action plans, whatever that particular client has, even business continuity plans, which aren't that as frequent as we would hope they would be. Um, so it's sitting down and looking what they have in place. And I'm evaluating, and, you know, with over 20 years of experience, not only writing crisis plans and reviewing them, but, you know, helping companies developing and testing them, I can comment sort of, hey, you're missing a whole section on earthquakes. You should probably put one in there. We don't write it for them. That's a different project. But we comment on sort of things that they would need or what we feel it might be missing from the documents. But really it gives us a sense of what they have in place. Really, at this point, unless you run a red ball drill, the only thing that companies will have in place with regards to active shooter is run, hide, fight, or if you're in the UK, run, hide, tell. Uh, they might go into what to expect from law enforcement when they show up. They might go into lockdown procedures, although that's rare. Uh, and more and more often now we see people including Stop the Bleed programs, which is a fantastic program. Um, but that's it. So... Uh, so really what we're developing for them is all of the management policy beyond that and even identifying more clearly what lockdown means. Uh, so then the second phase is an actual physical assessment. So we're walking through and we're looking at their, you know, perimeter. We're looking at cameras. We're looking at all, you know, all of the physical security and procedural security uh, that they have. Uh, and even beyond that to, you know, do they have an intelligence function or anything like that? Um, it's a one day walkthrough. So it's, it is not the same as having, you know, a five-man team come in and do a two-week analysis of your building. Um, but what it does, and the most important part of that phase two, is it gives us an understanding of the organizational culture of that facility. Because the problems of a school are not the problems of a hospital, are not the problems of a commercial building. You cannot simply throw a blanket of solution over every building hoping it will work out. And that's essentially what Run High Fight is. It lacks site specificity. Uh, so phase two allows us to really look more closely at if we're develop, developing policy, you know, policy that I might get away with at a school, there's no way I could implement at an office building. So, again, you have to understand the organizational culture of, you know, the client you're dealing with. So at the end of that phase two, I would sit with a point of contact for that client and I'd say, okay, look, you hear about Vegas, you hear about Manchester, Jacksonville, uh, Sandy Hook. What do you envision happening here? What are the events that you think are most likely to happen in this facility? And from that conversation is where we develop the scenarios that we're going to use for the Red Ball drills themselves, uh, which means they're site-specific and they focus on the unique needs of that facility. Because even in the same healthcare system, one end of town, a hospital might have opioid issues, while the other end of town, the hospital might have gang issues. So, again, we're taking into account those issues. That's great. So and I, it, I, oh, sorry. Yeah. specific, I mean – and one of the things you, you, I had seen in your site and literature and stuff like that is sort of 
conducting these live drills uh, without uh, and testing without causing trauma to the participants. I'm wondering how you do that because it seems like you need to go through the walk through those scenarios and put some people in those situations. But maybe I'm missing it, missing something there. So maybe touch a little bit about how that how you're avoiding trauma for the participants. And and that leads us right into phase three is how we do that. And when I researched for the red ball drills. And I looked at the tactical style training with orange weapons and, you know, and I get why it's there. Anybody with a military or law enforcement background will tell you that the more realistic the training, the better the training. Why? Because how you train in the, you know, is how you will act in the field. For instance, a law enforcement officer, and this is a relatively famous, famous story, but a law enforcement officer would go to the target range, shoot his revolver, and at the end, after he emptied his weapon, he would stoop down and pick up his shell casings every time. So later when he was in a firefight in out in the street, and unfortunately he was killed in that firefight, when they found his body, they saw shell casings in his hand. Why? Because what he did in training is what he did in the field. My issue is that you cannot take tactical training and apply it to a civilian population. You'll never build the muscle memory. You'll never have the frequency of training that you need. So fear and realism are not important. They're not an essential part. And I don't even believe that fear is conducive to learning anyway. And my question from those kinds of trainings is, what is the actual outcome? So when people come and say, oh, we did this realistic training, it was awesome, I think that's great. There's a place for it. But I'm not interested in awesome training. I'm interested in training with awesome outcomes. So phase three, at the end of phase two, we and we design the scenarios, and a memo goes out to staff. And the memo basically says in the next week, if somebody enters the facility and produces a red ball, and there's a picture of it, it indicates that there is an active shooter and you need to react accordingly. And it goes on to state the rules, and the rules are going to change from facility to facility, but essentially it's saying all 911 calls will be simulated, there will be no aggressive actions from consultants, and no physical reaction is required from participants because I don't want them seeing the ball and running for Starbucks. Basically, it says the, when the ball comes out, it means you're about to enter into a conversation about a scenario. So now that memo goes out in phase three, the red ball drills themselves, you have a role player who holds the ball, keeps it in the backpack. You have a moderator who controls the exercise, asks questions, uh, carries a stopwatch to give people a sense of how time flows when an event is happening. So how does it not traumatize people? Well. It's not a test. It's an exercise that actually empowers the individual to utilize their knowledge of process in that facility to provide useful information and develop management policy procedure. So that role player would go into, and let's take an office building and a security guard at the front desk. The role player would go to the security guard, say, oh, yeah, I'm trying to get to the third floor, blah, blah, blah. And while he's saying that, reaches into his backpack and pulls out the red ball. The security guard got the memo, sees the red ball and goes, Oh, no, the red ball. Am I dead? That's usually the first question we get. Hmm. Moderator comes in quickly and says, you're not dead. Here's the scenario I want to discuss with you. And what ends up happening is you have a rolling tabletop exercise. The difference is when that ball comes out, it creates just a little bit of pressure. That's all I need. I don't need to scare the pants off of people. I just need them paying attention. I need to get their wheels turning. So that red ball creates the amount of pressure I need to elicit the critical thinking I want to have a conversation about process. And when you approach somebody, and not in a gotcha exercise way, but when you approach somebody and say, I need your knowledge of this building so that we can discuss useful procedure, you get better information. 
Why? Because you're not putting them on the defensive. You're not coming up, pulling a ball out and saying, you better have the right answers and I'm testing you on those answers. You're saying, I don't know what to do here. I need your help. Anyone who didn't get the memo has no idea that there's even an active shooter drill taking place. Got it. So it's less about running through a real-time scenario and putting people the pressure on that. It's really uh, giving people enough pressure, like you said, in order to uh, come up with better policies and procedures so that when something does happen, people can more rationally follow them. Is that that fair to say? Well, not just better policy and procedures, any policies and procedures. Because if you haven't run a red ball drill, you do not have any policies or procedures. I have not seen it yet in the five years that I've been running this exercise, unless they've run a red ball drill. Why? Because the national standard is run, hide, fight. People use the word lockdown and throw it out into the field like it's, you know, a football, like the city of Phoenix is in lockdown. What does that even mean? It doesn't mean anything. Lockdown for a building should mean something, but it's typically not clearly defined. So the red ball drills walk through that process as well. So, but, yes, that's, that is the goal is to help develop that policy. But you're utilizing knowledge from that security guard. And the big difference between that tabletop exercise and a red ball drill exercise is think of who sits at a tabletop exercise. Headshed, management. Very rarely would they include a receptionist or a security guard or a vendor who happens to work in their building to get their perspective because everyone's thinking about it. Everyone's considering, gosh, what happens if an active shooter does come into this building? But nobody's opinion is being asked. So that's the big difference between the red ball drills and tabletop exercise. Got it. This is very helpful. I mean, are there any other instances where red red ball drills come into play besides an active shooter training? And what else could that be, the same kind of approach be utilized for? Uh, so it was. So our third client was a very large, uh, let's say, trading card company, and uh, and they host events like world championships and national championships for their game. <clears throat> and we were hired by the general counsel because he's like, I have three thousand kids and their parents in this room, and you're telling me you can run a live active shooter drill without any of them getting scared or angry. You're hired. That was basically what he said. So. As we were running red ball drills for their tournament and we were walking through it, he comes up after probably the third scenario we ran. He goes, look, I love the red ball drills. I love what they do. They do exactly what you said they were going to do. However, active shooters are not my biggest concern. And I said, oh, what is your biggest concern? He goes, honestly, I've got 3,000 kids in this room. Kidnap kids. He's like, that's my biggest concern. Could the red ball represent a missing child? And I looked at him and I said, I don't know. I've never tried it before. Let's try it. So we tried it, and it worked. It worked because the process of the red ball drills, when the ball comes out and you engage that person, whatever crisis event you want to discuss after that is entirely up to you and applicable. So when we discussed the scenario of a missing child, basically the first scenario was that a volunteer mother sees an adult dragging a kid down the hallway of the convention center. That kid is kicking and screaming, and they are convinced that's not that kid's parent. So I said, you know, okay, go. What What's the first step you're taking? And immediately she goes to Code Adam, which is the national standard. And she goes, oh, Code Adam, you know, we're all training Code Adam, so the first thing is to write a description of the child. And I was like, okay, that's useful in 1985. However, why aren't you not pulling out your phone and taking a picture of both? And she goes, oh, that's a good idea. Because, again, what seems like common sense isn't until you start to discuss process. 
And then as we discussed further, I said, well, you know, what if we do A, B, and C? And she goes, no, that won't work, and here's why. Her knowledge of process was better than mine. So as a Red Ball Drum moderator, the first thing I have to be willing to do is admit that I'm not right. It's not about coming in as a security expert and saying, this is what you should do based on my genius. It's about coming in and saying, I don't know what to do. I don't expect you to know what to do. We are going to figure it out together by having a conversation. And once we did that missing child, we've run scenarios on sexual harassment, on floor warden responsibilities, suspicious packages. We've tested red ball procedures on canine response for looking for explosives for major sporting events. <clears throat> so it's, it's almost limitless uh, what you can do in terms of testing different crisis and looking at process. That's great stuff. The, um, I mean, you've already listed some mistakes that some existing training and approaches like run high fight you've run into. Are there others uh, that, that, that are glaring kind of mistakes that you've come across, whether not necessarily on an active shooter, but on some of these other scenarios too? Well, it's very difficult because, first of all, I, I tend to try not to speak ill of the living. <clears throat> and if, you know, if I really think something is a dumb idea then, and somebody asks, then I'll tell them. But, you know, my run, hide, fight, there's nothing wrong with run, hide, fight inherently. How it's taught and how I've seen it taught is problematic. Because typically when you see a consultant go out and, you know, teach run, hide, fight, which is a little insane to me, because if we compare run, hide, fight with stop, drop, and roll, Sesame Street teaches us stop, drop, and roll. Why do we need to pay $2,000 for a consultant to do that? Um, so that's one problem. The second is that people present it as an even distribution of choice. You can either run or hide or fight. When any security professional will tell you, hey, if you ask them, what do you do if there's a threat? They will say, move. You move away from the threat. So really what it should be, instead of an even, even distribution, is you know, 95% run, 4% uh, hide until you can run, and then fight. Really? Are you going to train that? Because people who are taking Krav Maga classes, hoping that it will help them in an active shooter event, I hope they're taking 10 years of it and practicing six times a week. Because other than that, they're not going to build the muscle memory they need to deal with that. And what does it mean to fight? Fight doesn't necessarily mean throwing a stapler at their head. It could mean negotiation. That fight should be distraction. That's what it should be, distraction and delay, so that they don't proceed to continue shooting everyone. So that's my issue with run, hide, fight. Other things, I mean, there's been reports of, I've seen a school, I won't name the state, but I've seen a school that installed smoke cannons that are controlled by local police. And police have control over cameras and the smoke cannons. If they see an active shooter in the school, they can press a button, and it launches the smoke cannons in the hallways so that it distracts the shooter and they can't see. The issue with that, of course, is who else can't see? Well, everyone. Police who are arriving on scene, uh, students who are trying to get away. It's insanity. And somewhere along the line, there was somebody who said, this product is amazing, you should try it, without thinking about process. Now, do I think smoke cannons could never be useful anywhere? No. I think it's site-specific, and I think you need to take a careful look at what process means before you start throwing out products and spending a lot of money on things. But even with schools, and this is my biggest point of concern, schools are the last to start looking at process because they are told what to do either by the board, by their school system's security officer, or by local police. And police, while their knowledge is great, they are not qualified as the end-all, be-all source of 
how to deal with process and develop process for a civilian population because they're too often thinking tactically. Good stuff. The, <clears throat> I mean, Red Bell Drills seems, as you've envisioned it, kind of a little bit applicable to a lot of different areas. Is it a one-stop solution to crisis training, or are there other things you would suggest in concert with the Red Bell Drill? No, it's, it's certainly not one-stop. I mean, it's, it, it, it addresses something that's very unique with regards to crisis training. Um, but any any offering out there that tells you this is what you need to survive and you'll be fine with this, you should immediately discount them and throw it off the table. Because anybody who tells you that you don't need an integrated solution is kidding themselves. So that's a very important question you ask, and I'll say, what don't the red ball drills do? Well, the red ball drills don't help to identify or pre-identify violent behavior from an HR perspective. While we have run scenarios with HR teams in terms of how to run a termination and what does a termination look like, and reporting for sexual harassment or for threats in the office space, we don't deal with the sort of legal aspects of, look, what happens when an ex-employee sends a threatening email to five of your employees? What do you do? I have no idea. There are people that do know how to deal with that, and you should hire them to talk to you through it. So we don't deal really heavily in communications or media. You know, how do you communicate to the public when you're an entity when there's been a shooting or a crisis event at your organization? Um, and then recovery, we do run exercises, some exercises on recovery, but we don't really delve deeply into recovery. The Red Bull drills were really initially designed for, from when the point that an active shooter shows up to the point law enforcement shows up. And that's a lot of time. In fact, we call that the gap in Red Bull drills. But, you know, if we assume police response, best case scenario is around four minutes, and then one to two minutes to get acclimated before they engage the threat, so that's six minutes, that's a lifetime to make decisions from a management perspective. So that's really why the red ball drills came about. And then we discovered that we could really tackle other crisis events that might happen. It's great. Uh, this has been really helpful, Eric. I mean, is there any other things that uh, did you want to add into um, that we haven't talked about today on terms of uh, your approach and the red ball drills and, uh, what other components are critical for uh, reducing casualties uh, when something like this happens? Um, I, I have two case studies that I'd like to go, just describe because it'll give people a better visual of how the red ball drills work. Um, one was at a performing arts center uh, in Kentucky, and it was actually the end of the day for red ball drills. Um, oh. and, uh, and I was sitting with the security director and the assistant security director, and I was giving him sort of a debrief on our findings for that day, and the, the director says, you know, Eric, I can't believe I didn't bring this up before, but, you know, I think about an Aurora-style shooting every day, which was the Batman in the movie theater. And he's like, I don't know why I didn't bring it up, but literally every day I think about a scenario like that. He's like, could we run a red ball drill on that? I said, sure, but let's not sit in the lobby. Let's go sit in the theater. And as we're walking into the theater, in my mind as a security professional, I'm thinking about an active shooter standing up in a theater and opening fire like a bomb going off. You know, there's just not much you can do to manage something like that. That's what I thought. And, in fact, that was the last time that I had preconceived notions of what you can or cannot do based on an event. So we walk into the theater, sat in the last row in the back, looked down towards the stage, and I said, okay, second row center, somebody stands up and starts shooting. What is the first thing we're thinking about? And the assistant security director goes, lights. Immediately, without hesitating, he goes, lights. I'm like, lights? 
how do we get the lights up? He goes, there's only two people that can turn on the lights, technical booth and the stage manager. I'm like, well, how are we communicating with them? He's like, there's only one way to communicate with the stage manager or the technical booth because they probably, they wouldn't even hear shots being fired from where they are. And as we started to dive deeper into the conversation, we spent 45 minutes talking about process and procedure on managing that very event, the one that I thought you couldn't do anything for. And it came out, we were discussing that, the, that they had two armed state troopers in the lobby. And I said immediately, hey, you know, why don't we just stick the state troopers in the theater? Because if they even hear shots being fired in the theater, which they probably wouldn't, they're not even going to start going towards the theater until there's a swarm of people coming out, which could mean a four-minute response time for them to just get in to engage the threat. I'm like, can we just put them in the theater? And they said, no, we've asked that question. Our board of directors will not allow law enforcement to stand in the theater. Again, we go back to organizational culture and what we can or cannot do from, with regards to policy. I'm like, all right, well, if we can't do that, then how do we get them in the theater faster? And the assistant security director says, well, you know, now that we're having this discussion, I've never thought of this before, but the balconies have a separate hallway and only 20 people are coming out of those balconies. And I'm like, well, how long does it take to run to the balconies from the lobby? He goes, I don't know. Well, this is why we carry a stopwatch. So in, I clocked it. We ran up there in 24 seconds. So in 24 seconds, you can have an armed law enforcement officer at an elevated position over the threat. However, you can't just stop there and say, that's great, we have that, because you don't know which state troopers are actually going to come and who are, who's moonlighting and taking that shift. So you have to take them up to the balcony, show them what their perspective is going to be like, make them understand how they can get up there through the tunnels. So, again, where I came in thinking you could do nothing, we spent an hour developing policy and procedure. That's how the red ball drills work, because you're discussing process, which is a big deal. Great example. Um, yeah, you said you had another one. I'd love to hear that one, too. Um, so for a very large healthcare system, we, we came in, everybody in this particular health, healthcare system on the main campus, when we said, okay, you know, an active shooter shows up in the building, what do you do? And they're like, I'm calling 911. I'm calling 911. I'm like, all right, well, where does 911 go? So I asked, who actually answers the phone when you call 911? They're like, oh, well, this healthcare system has its own 911 dispatch center. So I said, all right, if that's the case, I want to pull the red ball on a dispatcher because I want to understand processes. So we went to this dispatch, dispatch office for 911, and this is a major health system. So these people are super well-trained. The, the particular dispatcher I, I chatted with had been there for 16 years. So we came in and pulled the ball. She saw the ball, and she goes, oh, no, the red ball. And she goes, is there a shooter in dispatch? I go, no, that's not what the scenario is. Here's the scenario. You get a call. And somebody says, oh, my gosh, there's an active shooter in the cancer center. Go. And she goes right into her protocol, which she knew by heart. And she goes, okay, well, first I'm asking them for a description of the suspect, and I'm going into this and this and this. And I'm like, okay, wait, 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 wait. I want you to ask me all of the questions you would ask before you would hit the button for law enforcement to respond to the scene. Because she hadn't said that yet. And she goes, okay. So I hit the stopwatch again. And a minute and a half later, she was done with her questions before she would have indicated for law enforcement to respond to the scene. A minute and a half, and that was without answers. So let's assume it would be two and a half to three minutes before she would even send law enforcement to the scene. So I asked, you know, why are we doing that as opposed to just saying, can you verify shots fired? Can you verify a weapon on scene? Go, send police. Then you can get a description of the suspect. And she looks at me and she goes, you know, I thought of that, but nobody's ever asked her opinion. 
And I'm like, well, I'm asking it. <laughs> so what else do you think we should do? And we spent 45 minutes talking about process in 911 dispatch. And just from the first one minute of that conversation, we cut off three minutes of response time for police. So, again, this it's not about making 911 dispatch look bad. It didn't. It was about asking them and saying, look, let's talk through process because I think we can do this better. And they agreed. And the manager of that dispatch looked at us and he goes, I'm so glad we're having this conversation. He's like, are you writing all this down? I'm like, yes, it will be in the report at the end. And that's why it's useful. And I I mean, I have so many cases of this with Major League Baseball, with, you know, uh, different healthcare centers, commercial properties, investment companies. Why? Because once you start discussing process with people, the findings you get are simply different than any other training that's out there. And I'm not against other. I mean, again, there's Alice, there's Evade, there's Alert. They're all variations of run-hide-fight. You know, they all have their kind of unique spin on it, but they're all essentially run-hide-fight. There is no other training I've found that actually discusses process in a way that's meaningful and does it live, where you're actually physically walking through the facility to see how things would actually play out. And the Red Ball drills allow you to do that, which is why we've been able to run a live active shooter drill during an NHL hockey game, during a Major League Baseball game, because it doesn't interfere with any operations, and it doesn't freak people out. Unless they literally have a psychological aversion to a red ball, in which case there's nothing I can do about that. Yeah, got it. But those, I think those examples are really helpful in kind of making it real and really bringing home how you're really customizing it. As you're walking through the scenario, you're really customizing those policies and procedures for that particular uh, organization uh, in, in kind of real time. Um, fascinating stuff, great stuff. Uh, if any of our audience wants to get in touch uh, with someone at Experience Group around this, wh- wh- where should they go? Uh, they can go to redballdrills.com, and there's uh, there's phone number there and, and uh, info at redballdrills.com uh, if they have a request or just want to sort of chat about their process. Great, Eric. Uh, thanks for your time today. Really interesting, and we'll be sure to get the word out uh, to our members around how they can take advantage of this uh, this training. Thanks again for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks again for having me. Thank you for joining today's podcast. If you like this content and want more, go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a RAIN member. RAIN members get exclusive access to webinars, podcasts, the daily Riskbook email digest, expert content, and more. So go to www.rainnetwork.com backslash join to become a RAIN member today.